we're discussing the Minor Prophets. Uh, The Minor Prophets are 12 small books in the Old Testament, that first part of your Bible. Uh, That's why they're called the Minor Prophets, by the way, uh, because they're small, not because they're like a a sadder kind of music. Um, Just going to keep putting bad jokes there every time. I can't sing this semester, I promise myself. Um, So we're going to stop and study one Minor Prophet book a week. We're going to look at the book, and then we're going to take a key passage and march through that passage as best we can. Um, But let me, I, I feel like there's a lot of bad press surrounding the average Minor Prophet these days within the church and outside of the church. So I'm going to give a shameless plug for our good old friends, the Minor Prophets. Uh, first of all, they're life-changing. Um, and I don't mean this the way that someone, uh, when I was coaching soccer, a student told me that Wedding Crashers was life-changing. I don't mean it that way. Okay, I mean it actually changes the way that we live. Second, the Minor Prophets are graphic. They contain some of the most scary warnings and the most beautiful promises in all of the Bible. Uh, That's why, by the way, I've titled our series Postcards from the Edge, because these are quick, vivid snapshots and not a long, boring documentary. Okay, So you're going to get a postcard, a snapshot of what's going on, past, present, and future. Um, By the way, I stole the title. I feel like I have to say this every time. I stole the title Postcards from the Edge from a guy named Doug Servin, but he stole it from Princess Leia, uh, also known as Carrie Fisher. So I'm just going to put that on the table. Finally, uh, when the going gets tough, and it may get tough when we're talking about the Minor Prophets, uh, I want you to remember that all of the Bible, all of it, contains God's words for us. Okay? Listen to Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days, this is Paul talking, that's the Old Testament and the Minor Prophets included, former days. These things were written for our instruction, and that through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Okay? So, this means that even difficult books like the Minor Prophets will instruct, encourage, and give us hope. Even when it seems very unlikely that they'll do that. Okay? Something to look forward to. Alright, so last week we talked about the book of Jonah a little bit. I gave you sort of a preview of how prophecy works and what prophets are. Here's the takeaway. If you weren't there, no big deal. Here's the takeaway in two sentences. Some of you wish it had been two sentences. Um, Prophets are more like God's attorneys and less like psychic Anna. And prophecy isn't future telling only. Oftentimes it's a plea for us to pursue and turn to Jesus. Okay, That's the basic premise of what I talked about. And using Jonah chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. This week we're going to look at the book of Amos. Okay. Amos is the third minor prophet in order in your Bible, but he's historically probably the first minor prophet. Uh, He writes these nine chapters around 750 B.C. to the northern half of Israel, the people of Israel. That's called the northern kingdom. I'm not going to go into all that. If you want to know, we can talk about it afterwards. Um, There's lots. I mean... I'm condensing probably like thousands of pages of information into two minutes, okay? So he's writing to the northern kingdom, the northern people of Israel. The mid-700s BC is a rare period of peace and prosperity for northern Israel, okay? Uh, But it's it's a deceptive calm before a raging storm, okay? The main theme of Amos is injustice, it's present practice of injustice and it's future cost of injustice. 
The northern Israelites have grown wealthy, lazy, and greedy. And the rich 1% have oppressed the poor 99% into starvation and slavery. Okay? I'm not making a comment about Occupy Anything. I'm just sort of giving you some relevance there. Okay? Uh, but God is preparing to charge like a bear and strike like the serpent. Verse 19 of our passage. Look at that trickiness. In less than 30 years from when Amos writes... The superpower, neighboring superpower of Syria is going to come in and justly destroy all of northern Israel in 722 B.C. Okay, and that's what it's referring to in verse 27. Look, I'm doing all the work for my sermon already. This is so great. I'm almost done. Um, tonight we're going to look at a key passage in Amos uh, that I looked through this, and I thought this is sort of what the prophet is describing injustice and its just consequences, all the while making a passionate plea to us. Okay? And we're going to talk about what that passionate plea is. So if you'd open your Bibles or turn in your sheet uh, to Amos chapter 5, we're going to do most of chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 4 through 15 and 18 through 27. Look, you guys are already getting ready to get up. Um, if you're looking through, this, through the Bible, uh, you're going to look for Psalms and you're going to head right. Okay, You're going to go right after Hosea, Okay, right after Joel. There's Amos. Okay, If you go too far and you need to turn left, Matthew is a good marker. Go left from there. Okay? I'm reading the English Standard Version translation. Would you stand for the reading of Scripture? See? Some of you had already gotten your Bible put away and you're ready to go. All right. It's a little bit long, uh, but that's how the minor prophets like it. So here we go. Amos chapter 5, verse 4 and following. For thus says the Lord to the host, to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Galgal. Or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. P.S. When you're reading Old Testament names, it's best to go confidently and fast. Okay. <laughs> seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to bitter fruit, and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades, okay, and Orion, turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so the destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You afflict the righteous who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. We're skipping two verses. You're welcome. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or he went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate 
I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during forty years in the wilderness of O House of Israel? You shall take up Sekuth, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you have made for yourselves, your idols, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God of hosts. Friends, these are the words of God, and they are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, not an easy passage. I'm going to say that every week. Uh, but I pray that you would use it to glorify your name, uh, to help us to, to take some of the stuff that we've worked through this week already, Monday and Tuesday, um, some of the things that feel like they're already grinding away our personality. And I pray, Father, that you would use these passages to speak to our hearts, that it would change the way that we walk across this campus, that it would change the way that we look around in our classes, that it would change the way in which we view things like even RUF and church. I pray, Father, that you would teach our hearts to praise you with an unchained melody of your gospel in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would do that right here, right now. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So after reading that passage we just read, what's the first word that pops into your mind? Just play a little game of association here. Okay, ready? I'm going to give you a few samples. Maybe it's confusing. That's your word. Or long. That's your word. Or maybe it's what the H-E double hockey sticks is going on in this passage. Okay? Maybe that's your thing. Am I allowed to say that? Probably, because that's second grade. Okay. But if I force you to summarize the content of this passage in a word, what would most of you choose? I think we would all choose the word judgment. Okay? And if I had read the entirety of the book of Amos to you, again, we would choose the same word, judgment. Okay? The word judgment is the reason that most uh, preachers, most people who, who talk through the Bible, do not do Amos and the Minor Prophets. Okay? After all, who wants to be judgmental, especially on a college campus? This guy. Um, no, I, I think Amos isn't arguing for judgmentalness insofar as we define the term. Okay? So I'm not going to argue that we all need to get a little bit more judgmental. Okay? That's not my goal. Because for us, judgmentalness means judging someone's heart by their skirt length. Or judging someone's faith content by whether or not they have a fish on their bumper. Okay? That's judgmental. That's human and often false judgment based on appearances. That's what judgmentalness is. Okay? But for Amos, judgment refers to a true and divine test based on faith. Here's his question. Do we seek the Lord? Do we love good? Do we hate evil? He's just summarized the entire Old Testament, all 613 commands of God to Moses. 
and three commands, three questions. Okay, do we seek the Lord? Do we love goodness? Do we hate evil? Okay, that's three, not two. Okay. Um, look, this language of good and evil and judgment, if we're honest, kind of freaks us out a little bit, doesn't it? Okay. Not in sort of like I'm scared of it, but in sort of I feel already overwhelmed. Most of us unconsciously design our lives to avoid big, sweeping, moral ideas about the world and ourselves. Okay? Let me give you a little sample of how I'm going to prove this to you because you probably don't believe me. Okay? We're tolerant and open minded mostly because we're afraid of conflict. At least I am. We're ironic about what we wear. Mostly because we don't want to get made fun of. We're hurt, but we normalize the bad things people do to us. Which means divorced parents who don't celebrate holidays together. Fathers or mothers we've never known. These things are just the way life is. We settle on numbness because we're afraid to feel a sorrow that we can't fix. And we minimize the harsh thoughts, the hurtful comments, and the selfish actions that we have on a daily basis. We minimize them as a bad mood or a bad day or a challenging circumstance, right? So they shrink these, th- these hard, selfish thoughts, selfish motives, uh, hurtful comments. They shrink, but they never really go away. It's like, think about your heart as a computer monitor, and you, and you hit minimize instead of cancel. And so they're running at the bottom of your computer screen. And at the wrong times exactly, in the wrong places, they pop back up into our consciousness and our foreground. In short, we curb our desire for things like justice and goodness and truth because we don't want to deal with the sharp edges of our broken hearts and our broken world. But as I said last week, the minor prophets disrupt our lowered expectations. The message of Jesus and the prophets afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. Let me again quote my new favorite guy, Abraham Heschel. He's a Jewish scholar who puts this beautifully once again, a different quote from last week, but still gorgeous. Okay? We ourselves witness continually acts of injustice, manifestations of hypocrisy, falsehood, outrage, misery, but we rarely grow indignant or overly excited about it. But the prophets scorn those for whom God's presence is first comfort and security. The prophet, to him, to the prophet, the presence of God is a challenge, an incessant demand. God is compassion, not compromise. God is justice, though not heartless. The prophet's word is a scream in the night. What a great line. While the world is at ease and asleep, the prophet feels the blast from heaven. I mean, who writes like that? Abraham Heschel. Okay? The reason prophets like Amos grow indignant and see God's presence as challenge and justice is because they understand what evil is. Okay? And this is where a lot of our struggle is. You're in my struggle. And according to Cornelius Plantinga, the only way to understand evil fully is to fully understand good. The prophets know how many ways the world can go wrong because they know how many ways the world can go right. 
And they keep dreaming of a time where God will put all things to right, a time of universal flourishing, a time of wholeness, a time of delight, a time when everything will be the way it's supposed to be. Perhaps the prophets feel judgmental to us because they're asking us to dream for a world that should be and not just plan for how the world is. I know this isn't cool. Maybe it was cool in the 1960s. Maybe the 80s. Maybe it feels ridiculous. But what if we opened our hearts to a big, fat, personal desire and just let it ride? What if we did that instead of carefully managing all of our expectations for life? On a hot August day in the nation's capital, a man named Martin Luther King Jr. answered the question. Someone had asked him, would he ever be satisfied with America? And here's what he said. We refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. Oh, that's a great line. Okay? No, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. You see, King quotes Amos 5, verse 24, as the benchmark, the plumb line, the ideal of the way things ought to be, not just for the world, but for his own personal longings and desires. And so the question becomes, are we going to risk sincerity and potential disappointment alongside Amos? Are we going to go with him there? Because if we don't, this is going to be a really hard passage for us. Look, I get we're not Martin Luther King Jr. Okay? I'm not your second grade teacher who told you you can do anything. Okay? But I also get that we're, honest, we're not quite honest about the injustices going on around us and inside of us. In chapter 5, Amos is making a passionate plea for personal faith and social change. He's asking us to exercise our imaginations for what wholeness and delight should look like. How is NMSU supposed to look? How should your classes be going? What should your friendships look like? What should RUF's community feel like? And then what does it look like to seek the Lord with these big expectations and righteous disappointments? Let me summarize this long, rambling introduction in a sentence and get at the heart of what I think Amos is trying to say to us. Amos 5, one sentence. God loves justice and dwells with the afflicted. Therefore, seek the Lord and his goodness and hate evil. Okay? God loves justice and dwells with the afflicted. Therefore, seek the Lord and his goodness and hate evil. This message, this sentence is embedded in a pretty complicated piece of poetry. Okay? This message is a call for God's people to lament. It's a lament from verses 4 through 15. And then it's an oracle predicting woe from God. A woe oracle. Verses 18 through 27. Okay? So let me divide the passage the same way, same verses, but give you different terms. Because a woe oracle and a lament is not going to be very helpful for us, okay? All of Amos 5 is getting at a central question, something that's probably already nagging you. You're going to say, is he ever going to define this? 
but I believe Amos does this for us. What does it look like to seek the Lord? What does it look like to seek the Lord? First, in verses 4 through 15, we mostly see how not to seek the Lord. Second, in verses 18 through 27, we see how to seek the Lord. So first we're going to look at how not to seek the Lord, then we're going to look at how to seek the Lord. But just give me, I'm going to give you a caution. This is a super simplification. So I'm going to jump into some verses outside of those verses, and you're just going to have to be okay with that. <laughs> okay? So let's dig in, verses 4 through 15. Okay, we're going to look at how not to seek the Lord. Look, aside from a few verses, 4, 14, 15, 24, okay, besides those verses, most of this book, most of this chapter is about how not to seek the Lord. Okay? It's a bunch of warnings about how not to. It's about God talking to people who are running away from him. That's a lot of what Amos is about. First, Amos is God's mouthpiece, tells us that we run away from him, we run away from God, and don't seek him by false worship. So there's two ways that we don't seek God. One is false worship. Okay? And we see this in verses 4 through 6. There, Amos tells God, through Amos, tells Israel not to go to three ancient sites where they traditionally worshipped, where they had a habit of worshipping. Okay? Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. Again, I'm not going to go into all the details with that, but suffice it to say, two of those places are where Father Abraham, who had many sons, okay, and many sons had Father Abraham, he worshipped two of those places, okay? And so it's not, it's not sort of uh, out, of the, out of the picture, out of kind of good ideas to go and look at those places and worship there, okay? But why is God condemned their worship? Even when it's made to God, let alone to idols, which is a lot of the other part of the passage. Why does he condemn the worship made at those three places? Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. And let me tell you this. It's because God cares about where we worship him. The Israelites couldn't just worship God wherever they wanted to. Maybe this feels stingy. Okay? And this still actually holds for us still. So maybe you feel like the whole church thing's stingy. Okay? You kind of go, look, Sid, my idea of a perfect Sunday morning is getting on my bicycle and driving to the prettiest place in Crucis, looking at the sunrise or looking at the midday heat because I can't get up that early. And, okay, and I call that church, me and my bicycle in the prettiest place in Crucis. And even my dad did it. So why are you trying to hit on, why are you trying to mess with me, Okay. I understand that church isn't a building. That's not what I'm trying to say. But it is a body of people, right? And it requires a preset time and place for us to worship together with other people. So we can't just go take our bike and be E.T. and go and, you know, like, go find a place that's transcendent, okay? Later in chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, Amos tells us it matters how and why we worship. Not just where we worship, but how and why we worship. Look, I just went outside the sermon outline. We're going to be okay with that. We're looking at 21 through 23. Okay, those verses. In fact, God hates, despises, feasts, sacrifices, and songs that look perfectly fine from the outside, but have rotten motives behind them. Okay? And what he's saying there is we can't just go through the motions and say the right things and call that worship. There needs to be sincerity. Okay? 
Now, before some of you start wringing your hands and thinking, am I saved? Am I saved? Am I saved? I've got to have a one-on-one with Sid. He's got he's to calm me, pet my head, and tell me sweet things. Okay? <laughs> like, before we go there, okay, I think let me define sincerity. I think sincerity is defined by this. Sincerity in worship is an awareness of our own badness and a desire for God's goodness. An awareness of our own badness and a desire for God's goodness. Okay, that's sincerity. And let me give you three quick applications about sincerity in worship. Okay? And what this means, I think. First, gospel sincerity means coming to things like church and RUF shouldn't just feel like a duty all the time, something you're supposed to do, but maybe sometimes, and especially afterwards, actually feels like a delight. That's sincerity in worship. Okay? Second, sincerity in worship... It's really understanding that worship isn't really about us. Okay? It's not about how great my offering is, my voice, or how emotional I am during the song. Okay? Worship is about adoring Jesus. Lifting Jesus to be more believable and beautiful in the eyes of our hearts. Okay? Third and finally, gospel sincerity applies to choosing a church or ministry. Some of you are in that phase right now of the semester where you're trying to figure out where to worship, whether it's during the week or on Sundays. Um, some of you are going to do this in the future when you graduate. You're just like diehard RUF, which I appreciate. Okay, But you're going to have to make a decision about how to choose a church or a ministry, and it should not be done by style, but it should be content-driven. Okay, And this is very hard. Who we are worshiping, how God is portrayed in the music... And also how God is portrayed in the sermon should matter more to us than whether we like the musical tune or whether we like the feel of the place. Okay? Now, that's, these are hard things. I'm more than happy to talk to you about them. Um, they're my applications from the text. You can take them or leave them. Uh, Holy Spirit will do his work either way. Okay? So, but I think these are helpful to think about worship and what false worship might look like. Okay, but I've got to move on. I can't explain all of that. So Amos asks us to examine our motives okay, in worshiping. It's not about the gifts I bring to God. It's about why I'm bringing those gifts to God and how I'm bringing those gifts to God. That's basically the summary of that passage. Okay. And so it's easy for us to see how Amos moves from motivations in formal worship to everyday informal worship. How we relate to other people is an act of worship. Okay. After all, in Amos and all over the Bible, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, Colossians 3, our formal worship spills over into our informal everyday lives. Okay, Here's how a friend of mine, Jeff Ferguson, puts it. How we treat others reveals how we think about God. How we treat others reveals how we think about God. So how we treat others is a reflection of our worship. Does that make sense? So, verses 7 through 15 are taken up with the examples of treating others poorly. Injustice, oppression, and evil. God's people are turning justice into bitter fruit, verse 7. They're dishonest, they're trampling on the poor by their lack of generosity, their system of taxes that forces the poor to become rich people's slaves. That's verses 10 through 12. That's my summary. Okay, I'm doing a lot of verses here, so you're going to have to bear with me. And that's not hard to apply to our current social situation in America. Look, let me just make this caveat. America is not Israel. 
I know that's shocking for some of you. Okay? Glenn Beck is wrong. Even more shocking. We're not a Christian nation because we aren't ruled by God's laws like Israel was supposed to be ruled by God's laws. So taking prophecy of the Old Testament and applying it to the, to the modern day America is a poor choice. Again, controversial. We can talk about that later. Okay? But don't, don't miss my point. Okay? We are all still responsible to God. We're all still responsible to God. God is asking all of us very hard questions about how we live our lives. How do we spend our free time? How do we spend our free money? Do we sacrifice for others? Do we take things from others that are not ours? Not just like a pencil, okay? But emotions and sex. And God also cares about the many ways people have neglected and taken things from you and from me. Family members, friends, roommates, the kid next door that did stuff to you. That's all awful. Okay? And that's terrible. And God cares about that. I love the way that Tim Keller describes the modern American condition. He's a pastor in New York. He says we are stingy with our time and our money. And we are generous with our sex. And it should be the opposite. We should be generous with our time and our money and stingy with our sex. And this makes us hurt other people and be hurt by other people because we miss that understanding. Okay? And we can talk more about that later too if you're not buying that. Okay, Amos vividly summarizes all of this. This is going to help you tie it together. In an image in the beginning of chapter 8, you can flip there if you want to, it doesn't matter. It's an image of summer fruit rotting in the heat of August. Okay, you can imagine just a bunch of fruit piled up and getting rotten and having a stench go up and everyone, um, all the disgusting animals rolling all over it. Okay, And I think that that image is, is hard to understand about. He's talking about what injustice feels like and looks like, but I think it's really helpful to take a look at it from a different angle. And this is why I'm appreciative of a novel called Open Heart that uh, looks and explains at this, this image in a helpful way. The narrator, Antonio, asks his friend and uh, would-be minister, Beb, how he first met sin. Kind of interesting question. How did you first meet sin? And Bev describes driving through South Carolina during peach season. season, okay? There he is driving his convertible or whatever else, okay? And all of a sudden he's seeing piles and piles of peaches, big, pinky, yellow, juicy peaches that are going brown and rotting in the sun. They were dumped to keep the, the, the price of peaches high, you know, supply and demand. Thinking about all these mouth-watering peaches... Beb tells Antonio, they're just sitting there rotting. He says, it made you sick the same way that sin makes you sick. Sin is waste, Antonio. Sin is life wasted. Love that definition. Okay? Sin is life wasted. Sin is waste. In other words, we're given life to make things easier for other people, not harder. Injustice is life wasted. Our lives wasted and the people we could help's lives wasted. How do we handle all this? How do we handle all of this injustice? All of this life wasted done to us and done by us? Verses 18 through 27 suggest that we seek the Lord, but what does that look like? 
In the words of verse 24, we need to let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The context of the statement, again, is our worship. So, again, it's the true everyday worship that we involves the careful and constant concern for justice and righteousness. So justice is a worship issue. Doing justice is an every way, everyday way that we worship God. Okay? Therefore, it's not surprising that Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. saved his harshest criticism in the civil rights movement for white ministers. Okay? King writes in his letter from a Birmingham jail, we will have to repent in this generation not merely for harsh words and actions of bad people, but we will have to repent in this generation for the appalling silence of good people. In King's mind, the church is not a thermometer that records the ideas of popular, of, of popular ideas in modern society. It's a thermostat that, re- that changes the morals of society. Changes the temperature of the morals of society. There is a higher law than state and federal law. And that law is God's law. And that's the basis of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And so it was primarily the church that led the civil rights charge. The opposition to racism in America was Christian, a deeper and truer version of Christianity that arose from scriptures like Amos chapter 5, verse 24. What's the point? That's awesome, Sid. You just talked about civil rights. Um, the lesson of Martin Luther King is not just go and do likewise. It can't be. It also cannot be just hate evil and love good. We can't do any of those things without the power of Jesus. Do we get that? You see, Jesus' justice is a fruit of the gospel working in someone's heart. We can't do justice to get right with God. We need to get God's justice, his righteousness in Christ in order to do justice. Okay? We can't earn our way to God through doing justice. We need God's righteousness in order to do justice. Does that make sense to everybody? We can only get this righteousness by faith in Christ. We must come to God as beggars and get his gift that we don't deserve, that we're, we're poor and we can't supply. And so we do justice. We help the poor because we understand that he who was rich in heaven envied himself out and became poor on earth to make us spiritually rich. That's the motive for justice. That's the motive for loving other people. That's the gospel action working in our hearts. You see, Jesus didn't come to earth to bring judgment to us. Instead, he bore judgment for us who believe. Jesus took all the exile, all the fire, all the darkness, and even the serpent's bite on the cross, that day of the Lord described in this passage, so that we can bring our sins against others to God, and that his forgiveness can turn us from loving evil to hating it, to hating good to loving it. Forgiveness changes who we are and how we act, because we understand where goodness comes from. We understand our own poverty. 
You see, Jesus didn't come to earth as a rich man at the top of society. He came to earth as a poor man at the bottom. His whole life was a celebration of being unjustly acted against. Do you realize that? Jesus was lynched. He was lynched. I don't use that lightly. He was a victim of injustice, even on the cross, for us and with us, so that we can bring the ways that we're sinned against to him. So that he will comfort us in our afflictions. By his wounds we'll be healed. You see, Jesus hates suffering. He hates injustice. He hates evil so much that he came to the world to experience it, to defeat it, and someday soon he will come and wipe away from all the earth all the evil that ever was. If that truth is what justice means, if that truth is what judgment means, let's desire it. Let's long for it. I have a dream, and it looks like the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would help us to get a little bit more idealistic, (laughs) would help us to, to... to stretch ourselves to think about the wonderful ways that you've made this earth and what it should be. To not shrug our shoulders, to not say whatever, but to actually help us to lean into life and to care about what's going on inside of us and outside of us. Help us to risk paper cuts. Help us to risk uh, messes. Help us to risk doing a poor job. But we can't fail in you. You failed so we can succeed. I pray, Father, that you would teach us what Jesus' death meant to us, what his resurrection means for us. I pray, Father, that you would let us leave this room. You wouldn't let me leave this room without caring a little bit more about your universe, about my heart. In Jesus' name we pray.